Romans 11. Once in a while, we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming a couple from Lake Tahoe. Mike and June Rao. Give them a warm welcome tonight. I won't tell you what, who Mike said I look like, but... Also, we're used to seeing Bill frequently from the Potter Shed. We're not so used to seeing his lovely wife, Jennifer. Let's give her a warm welcome. She's a preacher's kid. She turned out all right. Not all of us, not all of them do, you know. Preacher's kids, they don't all turn out right. Ask, ask the dad of Jesse and Jesse James, I think it is, Jesse James. But he was a Baptist, so that doesn't count. Okay, <laughs> just kidding. All Jesse James's father was, that is. My goal was to finish Romans 11. My intention is to take my twice annual trip to Florida. But as I mentioned to the crowd last night, there are things pressing on this side and things pressing on that side. So I may be here, much to your chagrin, not only tonight, but the next two Sundays. And so I've asked the four horsemen that I've enlisted to speak in my absence to be flexible, if possible. And I appreciate that. So hopefully my, my agenda is to finish Romans 11. And with that, to finish the series, which we call Better Call Paul. And that may, if I can do that in three messages, that'll be sort of miraculous. But And then my intention is also to speak or to teach briefly on the pastoral epistles as a kind of an extraordinary segue into Romans. We're going to do Romans the epistle, and that's what I intend to do. So if it works out right, we'll finish Better Call Paul and then maybe hold off for the pastoral epistles segment, and then Romans will begin in earnest uh, upon my return. Okay, let's take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, the more we delve into your word, the more we, are grat- we have gratitude for the deliverance that you've accomplished in Jesus Christ, your son. And the more our hope is intensified for that deliverance that you will accomplish in the parousia of the liberator who comes from Zion. We ask tonight that you'll continue to challenge through the teaching of the word, through the Holy Spirit, and that we may have a clear view of the incarnate word who became flesh to redeem creation. We ask this in his name. Amen. We've been teaching Romans 11, starting at verse 1 now, for several weeks. We've reached 1124. Paul is speaking still to the Gentile Christians. He began that in earnest in verse 13 of Romans 11. Last night we spoke about how he challenged and, in fact, reproved their so-called common-sense thinking, which is a group bias of a certain group of Gentile Christians who were judging or not so much judging as despising a group in Rome, a group of saints that were Jewish Christians. The Gentile Christians Paul is taking to task are called the strong in faith in Romans 14. They despise a group of Christians, predominantly Jewish Christians, who are weak in faith. And those Jewish Christians are also reacting to the false liberty of some of these Gentile Christians. Paul's aim is to produce a unity there among the saints. He does not say to the church in Rome when he addresses Romans. He says to the saints that are in Rome. There is no unity of the church there. There are five divisive groups. And he's on his way to Spain to complete his missionary calling from God. 
He wants to go through Rome, and he sure would like to see a more unified assembly there to support that final thrust of his mission to the pagans. So still speaking to Gentile Christians to arouse his own people, Israel, to jealousy, which is a way of speaking. It's a manner of speaking. He doesn't mean literally to make them jealous, but to arouse their curiosity about the thesis and reasoning that he's presenting here. Arouse them to curiosity about this gospel, about God's son, which he takes from their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. There was only one Bible when Paul was here, and it was the we call the Old Testament. It's the scriptures of Israel, the oracles of God in Israel. And Paul is more riddled and saturated and pervaded with the Old Testament scriptures than you, you and I can imagine. I'm discovering this moment by moment in my study, and that's why I didn't finish my edit tonight until 628. So you can imagine, did he obey the speed limit? Romans eleven twenty four. for you see, Paul says, if you were cut off, and they were from a wild olive tree, I'm not going to go and re- reiterate the whole thing, but if you, Gentile Christians, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were, contrary to nature, grafted into the cultivated olive tree, that's Israel, according to Jeremiah 11, 16 to 19, how much more will these, these broken off branches of Israel, which they were bragging, the Gentile Christians are bragging about, they were broken off that we might be accommodated in the plan of God. We took their place, which didn't happen at all, of course. They assumed the permanent taking away of the branches. Paul says, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree. Paul is predicting the salvation of the broken off branches in Israel, which is the same as the heart hardened part of Israel. The hardening of the heart of part of Israel is an act of God. As much as what we're going to talk about in a moment, all Israel being saved. That too is an act of God. This is marvelous in our eyes, says the psalmist in Psalm 118.23. So he says this, you were cut out, cut off to be grafted in. They were cut off to be grafted in. You and they are one. This is another way of arguing as he did in 1 Corinthians. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no Slave or free. There is no male or female, Galatians 3.28. You are all one in Christ Jesus. For as the body is one and yet consists of many parts, so also is Christ. You were cut out, cut off from a wild olive tree to be grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. They were cut off from the cultivated olive tree, which Yahweh himself shaped and made fruitful. They will be grafted in again. God does not annul their election. He annuls their unbelief. He brings that to an end. That's an act of God. You and they are one. And so the only other that we can look to is God. God is totally other than ourselves. In Christ, there is no us and the others. And so there's the end of group bias with its limited common sense thinking. Paul's all about bringing them up and away from merely common sense to the uncommon wisdom of God, the mind of Christ. And this will become apparent even in the doxology. So there is no, quote, us and the others, close quote. Not in Christ. And in a wider sense, and this is important for our times, in a wider sense, there is no us and the others in all the human race. All the human race is one in the first Adam and dies. All the human race is one in the second Adam and lives. All the human race in one sense, in what we might call 
primary time, primary reality, already comprised of Christ, the second man, the one from heaven. So there is no us and the other. Us and the others, even in the whole of the human race, if we understand properly the word of God. The only other is God, and he is utterly other than us. So Paul is speaking of the eschatological, salvific, or saving, grafting in of the broken-off branches to the cultivated olive tree, the true Israel. And he's using that eschatological truth and prediction as leverage to reprove and hopefully to correct. All scripture is profitable for reproof and for correction, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness or teaching about the act of divine deliverance so that the man of God may be mature and thoroughly outfitted for every kind of honorable enterprise, every kind of good deed. Paul is reproving and hopefully to correct the elective elitist arrogance which was aided by the limited common sense of a group bias of a major faction of Gentile Christians in Rome at the time. That's the exigence of this epistle. That's one of the reasons why Paul wrote it. It isn't just to write a theological thesis. If Paul wanted to write a theological thesis, it wouldn't look like Romans. It would be look more like the Council of Nicaea's document. He wasn't doing that. There's a lot more about why he wrote it. The last thing I read about a scholar is that Paul was writing to combat the false gospel of a teacher. And that's true. There are several things that scholars have said in the past that are happening in Romans. There's this, and then there's the five groups that are addressed, and then there's the teacher versus Paul, but there's something bigger. There's an outer circle that's even bigger than that, the reason why Paul wrote, and what he's after, and what he's all about, and what he's up to in Romans, that we're going to tackle Romans from that standpoint. And I haven't quite yet said what it is, but there'll be hints in the next couple of messages. Paul is speaking here of a certain event, an eschatological salvific grafting in of the broken off branches. And it was to reprove and hopefully correct a major faction of Gentile Christians in Rome at the time. Paul also belonged to those who were called the strong in faith. He was of a minority Jewish Christian, but strong in faith. He knew the liberty that he had in Christ Jesus. He was no longer strapped to the days and the observations and the kosher table and the rest of the things that many of the scrupulous Jewish Christians were. But he was a member of the strong who did not despise the weak. And he said, let's receive one another as Christ received us to the glory of God. That's a tall order. But it's a command in Romans fifteen seven. Don't receive one another into your house churches, and there were several. And one would be the Gentile strong Christians, and they'd have a house church where they would meet. And if one of the Jewish Christians came in that was weak in faith, they'd meet him at the door and have an argument. They'd quarrel. And they'd have doubtful disputations, as the old King James said. And so there was a divisiveness there that Paul's trying to reprove. If he's on his way to Spain in the Spanish mission, if he's also at the same time finishing a collection, that's one of the other circles that preachers have said and scholars have said, he wants to build a collection from the Gentile churches to give to the poor, suffering Jerusalem saints. He wants to have a unity. The best way he can show unity is to collect from the Gentiles what today would be multiple millions of dollars to give to the suffering Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And they were giving in Macedonia, Philippi, and other cities in Macedonia, Thessalonica. They were giving for this enterprise. Couple that with Paul's intent to go to Spain to bring the gospel where it wasn't preached before, but he's got to do it on the way through Rome. He wants unity there. 
because the unified church will be supportive, not only in terms of monetary support, that's not what he's after, but prayerful support and unity. Unit integrity is the strongest element in the effectiveness of a team. And he wants that unit integrity to be supportive of him as he goes to Spain. All of this you can find in Romans 15. So he's writing this section to correct a group bias. And there, we are riddled with group biases in America today. Romans 11.25, he says, now he gets a little tender here after being somewhat sharp. He said earlier, behold the harshness and the kindness of God. And he's used a little bit of harshness, but now he goes into the kindness mode. And here he says, my siblings, my brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. That is, he doesn't want them to be restricted to mere human common sense, which is a limiting, acceptable norm in your particular group. I, want you, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, meaning I don't want you to continue in the limitations of human common sense. And there's nothing wrong with common sense. But if you're going to understand the mystery, you're going to have to understand something that's uncommon, divine wisdom. Therefore, that's why he goes right into Romans 12. There probably shouldn't even be a break when he says in Romans 12, Therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that you might demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, and stop being, trans- stop being conformed to the thinking of this age, a passing evil age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I say to you, Paul said, by the grace that was given to me, meaning to speak to all the churches, To stop being arrogant. Stop being arrogant. In other words, to humble yourselves and to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. My siblings, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Mystery is uncommon wisdom. So that you would not be literally sensible only in yourselves, wise only to yourself, wise in your own estimation, but it involves a kind of a conceit. That hardness has come about in part of Israel only until, now notice that translation I put only until because he's, the emphasis is falling on the temporality of this and the partial nature of this. The hardening is in part. The hardening is temporary. The mystery or the revealed secret of God is that hardness has come about in part of Israel only until the totality of the Gentiles comes in. That means enters the kingdom of God. The word there is the same word Jesus uses for entering the kingdom of God or the Israel of God over whom Jesus Christ is king. So we are ending here, or beginning to end, where we began in our biblical mathematics. The pagan pleroma plus the pas of Israel. Pagan pleroma plus the Jewish pas, meaning all. That's totality of the nations, totality of the nations plus the all of Israel equals all humankind, all mankind, all of humanity. And so we do have in Paul a vision of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. We do have in Paul the declaration of a universal impact of the cross slash resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do have in Paul what we have in Revelation, an apocalyptic vision of an all-saving Savior. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the liberator who comes from Zion and takes away ungodliness from Jacob, as we'll see right here. 
So we're beginning, where we're ending, rather, where we began. The pagan pleroma and the all of Israel equals all of humanity, which calls into remembrance Romans 5, 12 to 19, where because of Jesus Christ's act of righteousness, one act of righteousness, all of the human race is acquitted, all the ungodly are rectified, set right. Romans 5, 12 to 19. Also, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two to 28. Before this, we went into 1 Corinthians 15 to ride the high country of Paul's epistles, in which it says, in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There is a unity of these verses. Regarding this word, incidentally, all in all Israel will be saved. I'm doing a little repetition before I get into the next part of this. The word pas, P-A-S, as I mentioned last night, Daniel B. Wallace in his book, which is recommended as a grammar beyond the basics, Greek grammar beyond the basics. He says nouns with pas, P-A-S, and doesn't have an article in front of it, and holos, H-O-L-O-S, do not need the article to be definite for either the class as a whole, all, or distributive, every, is being specified. Either way, he says, a generic force is given in such constructions. So the generic force is given to pas, and pas is all without exception, all Israel. And that includes the part that's broken off, the branches that are broken off, the part that's hardened. The word generic by dictionary definition means relating to or descriptive of an entire group or class. So in Romans 11.26, the entire class of people called Israel will be saved. Now this is where I hit an impasse, I hit a wall, because scholars say, but you must not forget This can't mean all of Israel without exception because Paul said in Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. But there's an answer for that. In fact, there's an answer that breaks that wall to pieces and it obliterates it. And so I'd like you to consider this. And I take down the verses because this involves a lot of reasoning that took me more hours than I can count to finally disentangle this A lot of translation, a lot of exegesis is disentangling translations that have misrepresented the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's it's amazing. And there isn't one that I could recommend fully and heartily. There has to be a new one, a, a one made. So Paul's statement, not all Israel is Israel, in Romans 9, 6, cannot soften the universality in all Israel will be saved. In case I lose you in this disentangling process, let me just say this. Not all Israel is Israel is followed up later in Romans 9 by Paul saying, yes, but God also says through Hosea, those whom I once called not my people, which is not Israel, the part of Israel that's not Israel, will be called the sons of the living God. So the present tense fact that not all Israel is the Israel of God presently doesn't mean that forever there will be a people called not Israel because the people that are not Israel now that have come from Israel and descended from the patriarchs will one day be called the sons of the living God. So there goes that argument Romans 9, 6. So now I'll hit it a little more in detail. Paul's statement, not all Israel is Israel, that he made in Romans 9, 6, cannot soften or diminish the universality, all Israel being saved. Because in Hosea 1, 9, in this Septuagint, u laos mu, in the Greek Septuagint, u laos mu, not my people, will be called sons of the living God. And that's also Hosea 2.1 in the Septuagint. The English text, it's Hosea 1.10. So imagine even trying to disentangle that. So in Romans 9.26, Paul cites this. He says, yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, 
they will be called sons of the living God. That means they'll have their adoption as sons back, which is an unconditional gift. The gifts of God, including the adoption that he gave to Israel, are irrevocable. Romans 11.29, where we're headed, that's not about you. That's not about me. It's not about eternal security for the individual believer. That's the gifts and the calling of Israel. They are without revocation. They can't be revoked. And that's good news for us, of course, because... Our election in Christ cannot be revoked either because of that. But the root bears us. We don't bear the root. Now, I'm, right now, I'm disciplining myself not, not to comment on any athletic events about the root-bearing people and people thinking they bear the root. But I won't get into that. See, I'm disciplined. I'm not doing that. So, sons of the living God. That was cited by Paul in Romans 9.26. Now, in other places in the scriptures you you see this word, though the number of the Israelites is as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, only a remnant will be saved. Only a remnant is saved. Paul is clarifying that by saying in history, there is a remnant according to to the election of God's grace and it's unconditional grace. That's in the sphere of history. Eschatologically, though, the number of Israel that is saved will be innumerable. In other words, they'll all be saved. There's no contradiction there. Romans 9, 6 speaks of the condition of Israel in the time in which Paul was writing. Because not all, Paul said, u pantes, who are descended from Israel, are Israel meaning what we would call the Israel of God. However, Paul continues his thinking, as we know, all the way to Romans eleven twenty six, when all Israel, including the part that's hardened or that would be called not my people or the cut-off branches, will be saved. In fact, to be Israel is to be God's people. And to be God's people is to be saved. Those who are temporarily and historically called by Yahweh, notice what I said, temporarily and historically called, not my people, u laos mu, not people of mine. Those whom he calls that historically and temporarily speaking will eschatologically be called the sons of the living God due to an act that is about to break into the scene and that's the parousia, the coming of Christ. When every eye will see Yahweh including those who pierced him and every knee will genuflect, every tongue will acknowledge And all flesh together will experience the salvation of Yahweh. To speak eschatologically, then, all Israel will be saved eschatologically, not historically speaking. To speak eschatologically is to speak of the Christ event. It is to speak of a universal impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the primary eschatological event isn't something in our future. It's something in our past. It's the event of the crucifixion of God's Messiah, which is inseparable from his resurrection. So to speak eschatologically is to speak of the Christ event. It is to speak of a universal impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the cross, that is, in Christ, on the cross. And that's an important distinction. God was reconciling the whole world to himself. As 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says. This includes the part of the world that is temporarily called not my people. because they will be called the sons of the living God. 
The hardened part of Israel is going to have the hardened heart taken out, and it's going to be replaced with the heart of flesh. Guess what the heart of flesh is? It doesn't just mean a human heart. It means Christ's own heart will be beating in them. Because the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And the body of Christ is one flesh with him. And the body of Christ will include all Israel. And so when he takes out the stony heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh, he's putting in them the heart of Christ himself. Which is why Paul, as a preview of this coming attraction, said, I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and yet it is not I who lives, it is Christ who lives in me. Why? Because the stony heart was taken out of me and replaced by a heart of flesh, and the heart of flesh is Christ's own heart. He lives in me. And this is also part of the new covenant that is predicted in Ezekiel 36. 26 and 27. So the heart of flesh there is the heart of the man Christ Jesus beating in the chest of you today and of all Israel and all the Gentiles in a day that's coming. So it would probably be noted, I think it would be well to note, that Paul quotes Hosea 1.10, which is 2.1 in the Septuagint, in Romans 9.26. Again, I want to emphasize this. He says, it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, that there they will be called the sons of the living God. So not all Israel is Israel doesn't say that all Israel being saved means only the part that's really Israel because it includes the people that God has said they're not my people, but they will be the sons of the living God. So in other words, the whole thing about a universal salvation of all Israel cannot be challenged by previous statements that Paul made. He's after this truth from the very beginning in Romans 9.1, in that section of Romans called Romans 9-11, through 11, which is far from a parenthesis. It's not a parenthesis in Paul's reasoning. It's the heart of the matter. So put these two verses side by side to make it simple. Romans 9.6a, the first part. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. But put that with Romans 9.26, and you have, and it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. So the fact that there is a part of Israel that's not really Israel isn't forever. It's remedied at a certain point in the prophetic future. The remnant is the present election of grace of a number of Jewish Christians, which is an indication of the salvation of all of Israel by grace and not by works. And so all Israel will be saved as the remnant has been saved by an unconditional grace that has nothing to do with works, even if you want to make faith a human work. In the same way that there is a remnant according to the election of grace of Jewish Christians, which is Paul's trying to defend here from the attacks of brutish and Goliath loudmouth, Goliath-like loudmouths, he's trying to defend them. There is an election according to grace. And if it's grace, it's no more works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be an unconditional result of a divine unilateral covenant. And so in the same way that this election by grace is present in history, so the same way all Israel will be saved eschatologically by a fiat, a miracle of divine grace in the parousia of Christ. Now, good news for you. If we teach Romans, this will be ironed out a lot more than I'm doing it right now because it takes a lot more teaching. The remnant 
which is the present election of grace, is a number of Jewish Christians, which is an indication of the salvation of all of Israel. In other words, the number of presently saved Jewish Christians is indicative of a number that can't be numbered, that is of all Israel being saved. Paul actually emphasizes the fact that the broken off branches are especially to be saved. This is trying to get these Gentile Christians to think a little differently, to think in terms of a mystery, to think in terms of an eschatology, a Christological end of history. And there are many other paths that can be followed here, but I'm just sticking with this one right now for, this, for the purposes that I have for Better Call Paul. That God will perform a short work on the earth, says Romans 9.28, is also an interesting quote of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 10.22. This again is Romans 9.28. I'm going back only for the purposes of interpretation. That God will perform a short work on the earth and that he will cut it short in righteousness. The majority text is correct here. Some of the translations that you have may not show that last phrase, in righteousness. Paul's quoting Isaiah 10.22. He means that the hardened majority of Israel will only be that way for a short time. The hardened part of Israel will only be that way for a short time. Will you say it's been 2,000 years? And I'll say to you, yes, and 1,000 years is as a day to God. Furthermore, in Hosea, he had already said in 6.2, after two days he will revive us and cause us to live again in his presence. After two days. Now, if a, year is as a, a day is as a thousand years to God, we could say, well, we should expect that pretty soon. I don't go that way because, as you know, my sister sent me a little text, not Becky this time, Sandy. She wrote this little 1950 lady, 1950s style lady drinking a coffee, and she goes, I don't want to brag, but I've like survived five ends of the world. And I said, well, so have I. It was when I went to Bible college, it was 1981, and it was absolutely certain. 1981, we had a professor who was famous for claiming that. 1981 came and went. So he changed it to 1984. 1984 came and went. And so people that claimed 1984 started saying, well, it's 1988 because Israel became a nation in 1948 and 40 years later. So 1988 came. So there's three ends of the world I've survived being born in the 70s. Then there was Y2K. Everybody got afraid. People even came to church that don't usually come to church. It came, and it went, and we survived another end of the world. Then there was 2012, and Hollywood even made a movie called 2012. And it came, and it went. And then there's September 23rd, 2017. The end of the world. A planet that even the astronomers didn't know about and scientists didn't know about is going to hit the earth. But then it came, and as it got real close, the doomsayer prophet says, well, I didn't mean the 23rd. I mean somewhere in October. But he's already protected himself. He's already done the CYA thing. And he said, there's going to be a string of events that begin in October. Yeah, well, there's been a string of events that began in October of A.D. 30 and 72, but it doesn't mean it's the end. We've survived many ends of the world. So I'm not going to say that Hosea 6.2 means that after 2,000 years, Israel will be revived, although maybe that's the case. It has been two days. That's Hosea 6.2. But the expectation of this is in Hosea 6.2, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a total salvation of Israel. God, it says, will cut short the time 
in the course of which a majority of Israel is hardened. What he's saying there, and Paul's interpreting Romans 9.28, this short work that God will cut short quickly, decisively, in righteousness means that Israel's hardness is only for a short time in history, and God's going to end it in righteousness, which means by a divine act of deliverance that radically transforms the hardened part of Israel and therefore destroys old Israel in the Adamic ontology but creates a new Israel in Christ. It's, a, it's an act of righteousness. And so he will cut that time short by an eschatological act of deliverance. En dikaiosune, in righteousness. The majority text has it right in this case because it actually is an accurate quotation of Isaiah 10, 22 to 23 in Romans 9, 27 and 28. So under the Holy Spirit's inspiring influence, he has modified that passage Christologically to show that the time of the cutting off of Israel will itself be cut off. And has been cut off at the cross of Christ. Again, I'll say that. Under the Holy Spirit's inspiring influence, Paul has modified that verse slightly. Christologically, to show that the time of the cutting off of part of Israel will itself be cut off by a saving judgment, a judgment that's salvific. A saving transformation in which the old hardened majority is destroyed in the act of a transformative judgment. Again, in the sphere of history, only a remnant will be saved, even though the sons of Israel are innumerable as the sands of the seashores. Historically speaking... The numbers of Israel will be as the sands of the sea, but only a remnant will be saved. That's historically speaking, but that's a history that will come to an end at the event that we're going to close with tonight. In the sphere of history, only a remnant will be saved, even though the sons of Israel are innumerable. Remember, Paul anticipated the salvation of some of his brothers and sisters in Israel after the flesh during the course of the present evil age. He was an example of them. But he expected the salvation of all of them at the end of this evil age. And God's going to break it off. God doesn't cut off forever the cut-off branches. He cuts off the time that the branches are cut off. This is his grace. This is his mercy. So again, in the sphere of history, only a remnant will be saved. But speaking eschatologically, the innumerable sons, that is all Israel will be saved because Yahweh executes his will and his word quickly. Because a thousand years is one day with the Lord in 2 Peter 3, 9. He does it decisively on earth. And that little phrase that's kicked out of many of the translations and should be there, en dikaiosune, means in righteousness. And Paul defines righteousness as an act of divine deliverance which requires no cooperation from the desperate creation that's redeemed. So by an act of righteousness, en dikasune, he cuts the time short when the branches of Israel are cut off. So he's saying, Gentile Christians, you should think differently about these people that you assume are from a people that are going to be cut off because they're going to be gloriously grafted back in again and you're going to look like an idiot. That's my, that's a kind of a crude paraphrase. So, it's going to be He's calling for a divine deliverance by a transformative judgment in which the Adamic ontology of Israel after the flesh is destroyed and the new Israel of God is created by God's justice. Moltmann was right. God's justice 
is not retributive, but creative. And in the creative act of making a new Israel, the old Israel is passe. It's passed away. It's destroyed in that sense, in that judgment. What is the act that cuts off the period of cutting off a part of Israel? Well, here it is. Let's begin with, we've already seen in 26a, and in this way, all Israel will be saved when all the fullness of the nations comes in. Now we proceed to the exegesis of Romans 11:26b, which we translate this way, just as it stands written. This is what the Jews will be listening to. Wait a minute. He's telling Gentile stuff from our scriptures, our Tanakh, our Torah, our Nevi'im, our Kethubim. So they're getting jealous they're listening in. He's using our scriptures to make a case for this gospel. And he's talking about all Israel being saved. So let's really listen in. So just as it stands written, we would say today, just as the Bible says, because the only Bible then was the Bible that are the Old Testament scriptures. The rescuer, I translate it that way because the word is from a word that means rescuer. Rescue, the rescuer, but you can translate this the liberator if you want to, because it means the same thing, the deliverer or the savior. They all work. And you can see that from Philippians 3.20. We, Paul says, whose citizenship is in heaven, we await a deliverer from heaven. This says he's coming from Zion, and they're both right. Zion is the city of David. It's the lineage of the royal Davidic king. And so he's predicting the liberator will come from Zion. This could really be fanned out. I don't have time for it. The city of David. It's called 2 Samuel 5, 7. It's the lineage of David. The liberator is going to come from Zion or the city of David or the lineage of David. This goes all the way back to Romans 1, 3. This is the gospel of God's son who, according to the flesh, Katasarka, is a descendant of David. This is all that saying. He comes from Zion. The liberator will come from Zion, from the lineage of David, from the city of David. And he also comes from heaven. Because this is speaking here of a heavenly Zion where the king reigns. He will remove ungodliness. Now, ungodliness goes deeper than sin itself. It is the wrongly directed or misdirected worship that accompanies idolatry. And so to remove this, asabiah, is only possible if there is a removal of the very nature as well as all the mental and physical acts of sin. Yahweh destroys the concealed root from beneath of, of ungodliness and the fruit that's, a visible, that's visible from above, which are the sinful acts and the idolatrous acts. But he says he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now here's where I hit another snag. This is why every bit of exegesis is a war zone. It's a fight. And I be, I'm careful how I use the word warrior because I don't think athletes are warriors. I think soldiers are warriors. Basketball players aren't warriors. They play a game with a ball. Football players are not warriors. They play a game with a ball made of pigskin. Baseball players are not warriors. They play a ball, a game, a ball game. Actors are not warriors. They can say all they want about politics, but then they have to do the only thing they really know how to do, and that's to pretend to be another person on stage. Warriors are men and women that have been in a war. Therefore, on some football teams, there's only one warrior. See what I'm doing? I'm commenting, but I said I wouldn't do that last night. So, But... What I, so I'm careful not to say we're in a war, but we are in a war if we understand that we are in an eschatological, apocalyptic war because there are enemies that are too strong for us called sin, death, and even the Torah, the law, and principalities and powers. And so we have to put on the full armor from God. And so exegesis is a kind of a battle. It's a kind of a contest. Because let me, if, look at your own translations here. I don't know what kind of English translations you have, or if you have your 
little device, you've got all of them on Bible Hub or something. It says, some of these say that the liberator is going to come from Zion and turn those who turn away from ungodliness. He's going to turn those in Jacob who turn away from ungodliness. Now, that's not what it says. These are evidently texts that are influenced by the Masoretic Hebrew. Let me give you an example just to make it square here. The New American Standard, Isaiah 59.20 is being quoted here by Paul. The New American Standard says, A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. In other words, it's almost conditional. I'll come to you if you turn from transgression. I'm going to come to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. That's a translation. It comes from the Masoretic text, which is dubious in itself. Or there is the NIV, the New International Version. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sin. It doesn't say he comes to Jacob to turn and to to those who repent of their sins. It says he comes and takes sin away from them. There's a big difference between, A, the Redeemer coming from Zion to those in Jacob who turn from rebellion and the Redeemer coming from Zion to turn away transgression from Jacob, period, over and out. That's all Israel being saved. He takes, what does the Lamb of God do to a sinful world? He takes away the sin of the world. What does he do to Israel who's not saved? He saves Israel. What does he do to the ungodliness of Jacob? He takes it away. This is an extremely important idea of the scripture. Paul never sees repentance as a precedent act before grace. Ever. He never puts repentance in front of grace and in front of salvation. Luke does sometimes as he records certain preachers. Paul never does. And if you're going to give me who I would go with, I'd go with Paul. But listen carefully. Salvation is from the Jews and for the Jews. It is of Yahweh through Christ who came through Israel via the patriarchs, Katasarka. These translations are terribly in in error. A redeemer comes from Zion, referring to the Jewish heritage of Messiah Jesus and the lineage of David, which is the royal heritage. He comes from Zion to take away, or basically the word means remove ungodliness from Jacob. He doesn't come to those that are willing to turn from their sins. That's absurd and wrong and a false gospel. These are evidently influenced from the Masoretic Hebrew text or the Tanakh, which says in Hebrew in Isaiah 59, 20, he shall come as a redeemer to Zion, to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn back from sin. Paul goes with the basic thrust of the Septuagint translation and he changes only one word and that's a preposition, a genitive preposition, eneken, which means for the sake of, to the genitive preposition meaning from. So let me say this again. I'll get to the bottom line. There is a big difference between the Redeemer coming from Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their rebellion. That's a partial salvation. To hell with the rest kind of thing. And the huge difference between that and the Redeemer coming from Zion to turn away transgression from Jacob. So the reality is that Jacob, that's all of Israel. It's another word for all of Israel because remember when Jacob wrestled with the man until the morning and the man called him, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel. The fact is, in keeping with all Israel will be saved, that Jacob will eventually turn, he will in fact turn from transgression or ungodliness only because the liberator turns ungodliness away from Jacob. 
or removes ungodliness from Jacob, which is a better translation. How does he do it? He takes out the old stony heart out of people. Who does he do that for? People with stony hearts. Not people who repent from their transgressions. Stony-hearted people can't do that. Ask Paul, Saul of Tarsus. So, I like what Fleming Rutledge said. She's my new friend. Does she know me? No, of course not. I'm just talking about her book. She says, quote, Paul rejects the idea of repentance as a precedent or precedent human work. That's pretty much exactly right. Paul rejects the idea of a repentance as a precedent or precedent human work. In more detail, she writes, in accordance, I think, with Paul's apocalyptic view, she was strongly influenced by Lou Martin, as many other people are today and should be. She says this, the cross-resurrection event marks the decisive turn in the cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. Repentance does not make this possible. God engenders the whole thing, including our repentance. There is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. The fix we were in has been dramatically and decisively reversed has nothing to do with your repentance. Acts 2.38, repent and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins. That's not what Paul teaches. Paul teaches that you're given salvation and forgiveness of sins, and then you have an idea retrospectively what you've been saved from. So, Paul is speaking here in Romans 11.26b, all Israel will be saved, and the Redeemer comes from Zion to take away ungodliness from Jacob. To describe nothing short of a salvific, eschatological transformation arising from the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It apocalyptically reveals the Lord Jesus in his universally saving significance. It isn't the Redeemer Jesus Christ coming to only that certain group of people who turn from their transgressions. It is the liberator, Jesus Christ, who is crucified and resurrected, ascended and enthroned, who comes from the heavenly Zion and takes ungodliness away from all of Jacob and saves all of Israel. So wouldn't you feel foolish if you thought Israel was permanently broken off and Gentiles replaced them So we have a good rationale to despise them, to hate them. No, I don't think so. But you can see how translations of the Bible support hateful rhetoric and hateful speech and hate speech. And you can see why people turn away from Christianity. It doesn't say he comes to those who repent in Jacob. It says he comes to take away an ungodliness from a people who couldn't repent if you gave them a million years and let them evolve into better creatures. In closing, then, here's my translation. It's no wonder. In fact... Christ's death on the cross is revealed not only in its universally redemptive impact toward mankind, but toward all creation. So no wonder Paul writes in Colossians 1.20, and he did write that, that because God made peace through the blood of his beloved son's cross, God would reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth in him. Translation, Romans 11.26b, just as it stands written, the rescuer will come out of Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's the B part. The A part, and so all Israel will be saved. And the B part, just as it stands written, I've got scriptural precedent, scriptural documentation. The rescuer will come out of Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's all Israel. 
Consequently, that part of Israel which had become hardened and remains to this day hardened by the action of God, he will give them a spirit of stupor and their backs will be bent down continuously until this event. The part of Israel which had become hardened by the action of God and the branches broken off by God were only temporarily broken off. And the hardness only temporary until this event happens. It's a eschatological event that involves hundreds of millions just like the eschatological event that brought you as an individual into Christ. John says something similar. As Hosea says, not Israel and therefore not my people, but this same hardened and broken off people will be called the sons of the living God. John said he came to his own, this word, this eternal word, and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, that is, as many as believed in his name were authorized to be called the children of God. That's the remnant, which anticipates the salvation of all. John agrees in the Gospel of John. The rest, of course, according to Paul and John, were hardened, but not forever, Romans 11.11. God hardens whom he will for as long as he will, and he elicits faith in whom he will when he wills to. So you can badger one of your friends all day long and God will keep them hardened until he wants to unharden them and you can't do a damn thing about it. You can represent the gospel properly to them and God might use that as leverage to change them. But you can't change anybody. You can only allow God to change you and transform you and I. So... What am I saying? God hardens whom he will for as long as he wills, and he elicits faith in whom he will when he wills to. But that puts way too much of the program on God. Yeah. Or as they say in Vermont, yeah. He will elicit, listen carefully, he will elicit faith in all when every eye sees him whose flesh was pierced, when every knee bows and when every tongue acknowledges Yahweh to be Yeshua to the glory of God the Father, meaning resulting in God being all in all, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. So I've got to finish this because I'm on a schedule that I think God put me on. So, if you want to make faith a condition, not of a contract, but if you want to make faith as a condition of receiving salvation, or if you don't, it is sure either way that all humanity will one day believe. And this faith will have been elicited by God in every single case. So we can be reconciled about that idea of faith. Romans eleven twenty seven, and then he says, and I'm going to pick up on this maybe Sunday. And this is my covenant with them. He quotes Isaiah 59, 21a, when I take away their sins. This, in other words, is in fulfillment of my new covenant in which I promise to take away their sins and remember them no more. And how does he do that? What is the new covenant? Jesus said it. This is my blood. This represents my blood, which confirms the new covenant. This is my blood shed for many, and many equals all. Matthew twenty six twenty eight, Matthew 20, 28, 1 Timothy 2, 6, Mark 10, 45, 1 Timothy 2.4. So here, by an abbreviated conflation of Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, and Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which closes with, by the new covenant, all shall know me, he says. There will be no need for evangelism. There'll be no need to go around saying, know the Lord, because they will all know him. 
from the least to the greatest, from the greatest to the least. He conflates here with absolute genius that can only be attributed to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 59, 20 and 21 with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. He links the salvation of all of Israel at the parousia of Christ with the divine fulfillment of the unconditional covenant known as the new covenant, which God made with Israel in toto. They will all know me. I will place my laws within their heart. I will put my spirit in them and cause them to be obedient to my ordinances. I will do this. I will do this. They will all know me. This is a unilateral covenant. And here's the fulfillment of it right here in the parousia. In a sudden, shocking act of salvific power, he saves all of Israel. And the salvation of all of Israel means the salvation of all the pagans and all the nations. And the salvation of Israel means the redemption of all creation. And that's what's in your future. And that's what's in my future. So whatever happens in this historical framework, and there are lots of possibilities, this country, many people in this country call themselves patriots, and they are too secure. They think America's going on forever, and it isn't. The kingdom of God is going on forever. So I shy away from prophetic utterances, too. The covenant was ratified by the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, in his death, by crucifixion and God gave a receipt for that payment in a little thing called resurrection by that same blood peace was made and the reconciliation of all creation to God was secured so just as the salvation of all the nations means the salvation of all of Israel so the salvation of all of Israel means the salvation of all the nations and of all creation this finally connects, as Revelation does, Yahweh's new covenant with Israel and the universal new creation. In other words, the fulfillment of the new covenant to Israel is the signal for the new creation of all things. Behold, I'm making everything new. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we know that much is going into these Last few messages, there's a lot to process. And I thank you for this congregation, for their attentiveness to these things. And I know that you're going to bring home the illumination of these things, not through a human teacher who is inadequate, inadequate to do so, but through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. We can tell Paul had that in his corner. He was constantly being illuminated divinely to an uncommon wisdom. And we pray that you will do that for us because only you can do that and you want to do that. Allow us to go beyond the common sense reasoning of group bias into the uncommon wisdom of the disclosure of the mystery, which is your intention to save all humankind and to sum up everything in your son. 